Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 114 with Nick Matthews, DP of Saw X. Enjoy. It's like they've been doing, yeah, like they, I remember when the first like Black Magic Cinematic Hammer came out, and I was like, okay, like, you know, because I, the one that was the screen with the lens mount. Uh, yeah. And like, yeah, cause they're, I mean, yeah, this is like the very specific, like, like camera in terms of camera technology. Like I started shooting one. It was like, I think my first cameras I was using were like the Z1U, like the, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Something like HDV where it was like, they had like a line skipping and like, you know, but it was pretty early. And then the XL1, the XLH1, the... Uh, I still have my XL2 in the closet. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Like the HEX200. The very first cameras I ever touched were like Ikigami, like... The tube. You know, uh, yeah. The tunes. Yeah. And then like, because I used to work for, I worked for a religious organization when I was in high school and college. Mm. And, and, and they did a lot of like promo things and shit like that on those kinds of cameras. And that was kind of where I started playing with cameras. And then when the DSLR revolution came out, you know, sort of happened. And like, suddenly I was in, I just finished college at the time. And I remember being like, holy shit, this is crazy. You know, and at the time it's like the red one, like the, the red M and then the red MX, like those were kind of happening. And yeah. so everything was sort of, yeah, there's so, so much transition and like, I'm one of those people that did like started when digital cinema was like really starting to take off. Right. And so I never had the opportunity to shoot on film except for I've had three opportunities I've shot on it on 16. One was, you know, I was in high school and someone had an old like Canon Scupic camera, which is like, <laughs> it's yeah, like Vietnam war era technology. They're designed to be used in war photography. So it's a really easy loading system. You can do it at, like a solo and you can do it in under, you know, under gunfire. Um, and then uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, I was like, no one's going to let me shoot on film until I do it. So right. I was like, if you have a music video or you have something come up or a short or like you want to do something on spec, like let's shoot something on 16. And then we had this uh, music video with this, you know, this, indie rock band it was all like it was a narrative there was no performance in the video and we we're like cool let's toss our rates in you know i think we had ten thousand dollars total so i was like all right we'll put in like both of, neither of us will make any money we'll hire a good crew you know we'll do everything else we need to do and then make something on 16 and um yeah so i've had a couple of those experiences but both of them were great learning experiences, but it was weird to kind of reverse engineer, like shooting on digital, being really familiar with like zebras and right. false color and waveforms and histograms and those being like the ways in which I started to understand like darkness and how I shot. And like, I remember very early on being like, oh, with digital, if I blow it out, like it will look horrible. You know what I mean? And so I got really in this space of like, let's start with like shooting images with a certain level of darkness and kind of etching images out of the darkness. So it's like on those old cameras where they weren't 
you know, full frame sensors and they weren't like APS, you know, C size sensors or 35 millimeter size sensors, you would stack the ND, you would shoot longer lens and you would open up or, you know, I never was a cool enough kid to have the, like, those like lettuce or, or, oh yeah, there was like the doubt that is, and here was the red rock. We've talked about these a lot on the podcast. There's a lot of people who like, I don't know if we look back fondly on them, but we've all been like, when we're talking, you know, old men screaming at clouds, uh, it's always like, you don't know how hard you had it. We had to take an, a DVX 100 and put about a mile and a half of metal tubes on the front. Yeah. And then the results were so part, you know, at the end of the day, like they, yeah, you lost like light. four stops of light. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a big, I don't know, like that's always been a weird thing. Now I'm like, I am not, I mean, I do care about cameras, but I am a little more camera agnostic and I just think the technology has gotten so good. Um, you know, I have my preferences, but at the same time, like the last three movies I've shot, I did, um, I shot this movie in Georgia that just came out called Mobland. It's got John Travolta, Stephen Dorff was one of those, like, very much a movie made by like <clears throat> a company that does direct to video type movies. And we were like, how do we elevate this and make this something more? But in the process, you know, it's a $5 million movie being made in 11 days. And I think we just shot three days splinter unit, you know, but uh, as a result, like my camera decisions were a, like what was affordable because we were shooting in Atlanta and gear in Atlanta goes for higher value because the market is pretty saturated yeah super and also yeah there's just actually not as many rental houses as you would think and so we flew gear in from la for that movie and we were shooting on mini lf with easy zooms and then we had black wings which when we got into some of the night work we had to flip to those and then we matched in an alexa mini as our c camera to that with a set of standard speeds but then that was just, you know, I've tended to shoot on airy products just because I'm very familiar. I know the color science. Um, but then when I got onto Saw, we had a 4K capture mandate on that as well. And at the time, this was back in, I shot, we shot principal photography for Saw X in November, October, November. And then we shot in January, February because the prosthetics uh, we're not going to be finished in time for us to shoot in the first half of the shoot. So mm -hmm. we ended up pushing, basically we went down for December and then we came back and wrapped the movie. And on that film, I was shooting in Mexico city and the availability of cameras and the availability of lenses became a determining factor because we had, um, the Venice and the Venice two you know, those were options we looked at. The Venice 2 was very unavailable and pretty expensive. Yeah. Uh, the Alexa Mini LF was available, but the lens options for it were very unavailable. And we were, on Saw X, we were very much looking for a uh, vintage quality glass. We wanted something that, you know, even though we knew we were going to be shooting digitally and we knew that we were going to be shooting 4K, we wanted to harken back to the earlier films which were shot 35 millimeter. They're gritty, they're dirty, they're grimy, they're textural. There's a bit of a, you know, they make you feel like you want a tetanus shot. And so for us on the movie, it's like, how do we bring that in knowing we're using a digital sensor? And so for us, it was like, we shot on a set of the Cook Classic Eye, Pink Rose, or however. The naming convention of that set of lenses is so terrible. Yeah. But 
Lenses in general don't have great <laughs> until you get to like the black wing or like the hawks right? or whatever. It's like, yeah. 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 But those like, you know, they're my yes. speed Pancro super. You're like, what, who exactly. makes that? <laughs> yeah. Like great, you know, they're modern glass in terms of the design and the, uh, like the quality control, but then the aesthetic of it is vintage. And so like I did a bunch of tests to show Kevin Gert, the director, and I should, you know, I did, I showed him, uh, ton of different lens, like large format lenses, nothing quite spoke to us. And the ones that did, we couldn't afford. Mm. And so even though, you know, this is a franchise movie, these are, I mean, this franchise is started from like something that was very much in this like $1 million range. Obviously the right. movies have gotten bigger than that, but these are not hundred million dollar movies. These are movies that are being made. You know, we still couldn't afford two sets of lenses. We had two Venices. Um, the main reason we settled on the Venice was global shutter was an issue, you know, was a thing we wanted. Um, 4k capture meant everything, but the very cam, the mini LS, the red, which I just haven't used the red in so long. And there's still, I'm the, the Raptor is nice, but they're still, yeah, yeah. And they just have, you know, they're not for everybody. Um, and for us, the Venice made sense because single stop ND also, we wanted to shoot it higher ASAs and start to bake in some grain as well, which I could have been done on the mini LF or the Venice, but ultimately it came down to, we could get super 35 lenses on the Venice in a way that was going to work better for us than on the mini LS. And so that veered our decision-making and, um, we ended up using a pearlescent one for that film and, you know, we filtered it. It's, it's great. You know, we added grain in post, but we shot mostly at 2000 ASA and you know, and that's an example of like, okay, that's a 4k capture mandate. We shot it in 4k, but then I wrapped saw in a month later, I was in Georgia shooting another movie. So I had like a string, um, which was really exhausting and really great. And then the right, the strikes happened and I've been pretty dead. And you were like, nailed it. <laughs> like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, it's great sitting around. Um, because I just, you know, I do commercials, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I should. I'm not, I'm somebody who sometimes gets to do commercials and I've been able to do movies. And so like, it's, and it's still an arena that I would love to play more in, but, um, yeah, not this last movie. It was my second feature with this director. I had done a horror movie for shutter with, which the shutter movie, you know, we had 18 days. It was $600,000. We shot it on the mini and we shot a set of super speeds and gets a black magic as our B camera. Um, this movie that we did in Georgia was you know, four or 5 million tier one union film, uh, bigger toys, you know, we had condors and 18 Ks and we shot, but we still ended up shooting on two Alexa minis. Uh, we shot on a set of Hawk V lights and then, you know, we ran two cameras similarly, couldn't afford to lens sets from the run of show. Like we just had to make, you know, ones that work. And so, you know, and that's an example of like, we didn't have a 4k capture mandate. You know, we knew that shooting every raw and like highest resolution, which I think is like 3.2K or 2.8K. And uh, anamorphic. 3 point, oh, and anamorphic. I think you're right. I think it's 2.8. Yeah. But the blow up is like something we weren't worried about. You know, we it shot it. great. All. Yeah. And we shot it all at 1600 ASA. And it's like, you know, knowing that we could like, we'll deliver and sell the movie and it'll end up on streamers and whatever. Um, and so that's where I'm like, yeah, the camera technology has gotten to a point where 
you know, there is, there are advantages like the Venice is heavier, the Venice is a little bigger. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, if you're doing stuff like with flashing lights or you're doing stuff with where you're doing like a lot of daytime exteriors, there's advantages to that camera system, you know? So we didn't use Rialto mode very much on, uh, saw just because we similarly, it costs more to have Rialto mode available all the time. Yeah, it's like an expensive uh, little cable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's the timing it takes to break the camera. So like even on something like, you know, we were running two cameras for most, like all those shoots I just mentioned were two camera shoots and they were pretty much running two cameras nonstop. So like we did not have the luxury of shooting with a body that then we would break a body off. We still did that a few times where it's like, hey, we're going to steady cam. Like, let's drop this body and like have it start prepping for like 15 to 20 minutes. Right. And then, you know, that kind of thing we would do in order to speed our transition time up. But in general, it's like, no, like you're lighting and shooting for two cameras most of the time. Um, yeah, I don't know. So like, I think we're in a really like fortunate space now where there are a lot of great digital options. And then at the end of the day, like, it still does come down to the right colorist or the right amount of time with the right colorist. Um, no matter the light, you know, in Mexico city, I didn't have my DIT on much before the shoot. I think we were doing makeup and hair tests on a Saturday before we started shooting on Monday. And I'm like, this isn't enough time for me to change the LUTs, you know? And so like our LUT for SOX was fan. I had only tested it indoors. I'd not gotten a chance to test it outdoors and it just didn't work outdoors. And so like we, you know, it's like I'm operating a camera, I have a B camera operator and I'm trying to also work my DIT to finesse the lot. And you're just like, okay, I just need to know like in the grade, have I blown anything out? And like my brain with that camera too, it's like the false color on the Venice is a different like color palette than on the Alexa. Yeah. And so for a while I was like, oh my God, am I severely underexposing this image? Because the, like the color of blue is so close to their color of purple for like different IRE, but anyway, yeah. Is this like, does the Venice use the Lockman zones? I don't even remember at this point. I think it's like to say EL. Yeah. I don't think I don't only reason I ask this, I, I get to interview that guy, uh, you know, like a couple weeks. Really? Because uh, he just shot something. But I was, I was like, I, it didn't occur to me that like a dude, like normally, like something like false color you imagine was an engineer. Yeah. But it's like, the, and it was, but then there's Ed Lockman who was like, no, 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 this needs to make sense for DPs. So he oh, like made his own version that various camera companies have started to implement. Um, the really, I didn't realize yet because I love, I mean, obviously like Carol's great and some of the, like his other films have been like, just like so stunning. And yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I think the oh, Alexa God. does it. I think the Venice, I don't know. Yeah. I think they, yeah. Just like those are really, to me, those are such like, because I came from doing like smaller, or like, you know, it's my first lighting sort of started with like just me and a camera and it's like it's gotten bigger over time and there's been more pieces involved and like even the shift from being non-union to union has been like a transition for me um and so like 
yeah, like every, like there are certain just rhythms and expectations and sort of approaches that become, you know, you know, you're a C500 back and forward. You know what I mean? You know where the buttons are, you know, like, oh, if I hit this hot key, like it's going to take me to this sort of a thing. And those, to me, like learning the gear is actually like so much of that. When I started my career, it was, that was a big part of my thinking and my time and my process. Now, like my testing and my interest in gear, it's, it exists, but it's very much like, I want this to be that, like that thing that happens in the background that I don't consider or need to consider. Um, and this is just like, you know, it's like when you're, you, it's like, I know how to, you know, I know how to do addition. And now we're in like physics class. Like you're not thinking about that sort of minor computation. That's right. And I feel that way with gear. But every time I use a new piece of gear, it's sort of like there are idiosyncrasies and stuff like that that you're sort of figuring out and picking, you know, pick, picking up along the way. It's definitely something that like, it's hard because um, like you were saying, like most people don't actually use Canon stuff. Um, and I'm always having to be like, because I'm a freelance colorist as well. So I'm, yeah. I work on all my own stuff. And so I always have to be like, trust me, you're going to like the way this looks, you know? And especially paired with like, like the, these guys, uh, I, I know you mentioned it online, but the, uh, yeah. the AIS, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Nikors, I want, uh, I want these to get rehoused so bad, but it's going to cost me like 20 grand. So that's not for, I know but, I'm, I've been looking at the, I haven't shot anything on them, but I've been looking at, cause I know there's a couple oh. people who have sets that are yeah. like rehoused. Um, and I'm so curious cause I used to shoot on them a bunch. They're, and I own a few. Yeah, they, I think it's the perfect, you know, when people were really getting horny over the K35s, uh, I was just like sneaking the, the Nikors on the set. Cause I'm like, it's not it like the K35s almost go a little too, too much of a look. Like if you want that great, but when some people are like, I don't know, we just kind of like, they weren't married to this idea of having such a, um, strong look like the, the Nikors are the perfect balance between, um, vintage but also sharp and like high quality and and whatnot because yeah the only weird thing about those lenses they do like the the focus wheel is reverse yeah which i don't know if that's something they can change if you get them housed if that or if that's they can what yeah my yeah, my, my buddy who runs zero optic has rehoused a bunch of them and that is one thing they do is they swap okay. the, the, the focus yeah uh, well i mean zero up yeah i mean they're one of yeah exactly them and like there's one other company i'd seen that but i was that's something I've always been, I've wanted to use a set of those because I also think it, I just would love to see them on 16 or I'd love to see them on like 35. Um, and there's a couple of DPs in the UK that I've seen doing work with it. And I'm just like, that's so stunning. And the book is great. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things I love about those lenses. Yeah. That was my first set of lenses I ever really was shooting with. That was like, not just like a 24 to 105s can't, you know, you know right, right. Ones were the night the night court you know like that series of like those still lenses and they just yeah they're there's something pretty special about them you know what's funny is so i i know you were saying like your first cameras were those the camcorders same here but then i got that xl2 and then you had mentioned off camera about the the t2i which i don't know what how that i think everyone was just really stoked on the 5d and then the t2i was affordable but like everyone i knew had a t2i and my dumbass, which was just hipstery from the beginning, bought a Nikon D90 
because yeah. it was the first camera to get video. So I thought that was cool for some reason. Uh, and it did 24p. Because yeah. the 5D at the time only did 30. That's right. And I, I thought 24p was, I was like, this is the real, this is real cinema. So, yeah. and you know, yeah. you weren't going to post, post conversion was like way harder. You had to do pull downs and shit. But um, I had all these Nikors, my, my uncle sold me his, his F2. So I had all these Nikors ready to roll. And I never, I never thought to use them. It's the same mount, but like when I was using the D90 to shoot stuff, I was always using the like 18 to 55 Sigma zoom. Yeah. Like it never occurred. Yeah. At the time, lenses were not like, well, I was a fucking college student and I was focused on other things, but you know, heaven's Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think there's also so much to like, you know, you just learn so much in the process and like you learn so much as you continue to make things and grow and like. They that affects what you do in the future, and you know I probably still shot more like pieces of work on the super speeds than any other pieces or glass, you know. And like even the very first short film I ever did outside of college was like you know Red MX on a set of super speeds, and it's like maybe there's something I like about them, and also they were fast and pretty cheap and had a great look, you know what I mean? And I think that's kind of been the fun aspect like continuing to get to shoot and continuing to get to test is like for me like most modern glasses pretty much you can put them all in the same category they like handle most of the world the same way like i know there are you know minor differences and it's like you're obviously like if you shoot on a master prime versus like a like uh you know you're gonna get different looks but at the same time like there are a lot you know it's a fairly minor difference between a lot of this you know a lot of this like very modern glass that's very clean and very like perfect um and then getting a chance to play with all those vintage lenses and some of the newer lenses you know modern glass that's been designed to feel vintage has been a lot of fun yeah i remember uh so like you know everyone again talks about the vintage lenses and wanting a look yeah. and all this and so i remember I was, when we were at cinegear i was talking to a guy who put put up a lens test you know, it was, it was like all the major lenses. And then I think I could be editorializing here, but I think they wrote down what they thought would be their favorite. And then it was a blind test. And then they wrote down what their favorites actually were like in order. Yeah. And apparently across the board, CP2s. Wild. E everyone thought the CP2s would, but, and I, that shocked me because I always thought those things were like CA monsters, but. Yeah. And I watched a couple lens tests recently. And I think what happens is when you just get like the same image back to back to back to back, you very quickly become annoyed with imperfection. You know, oh, I can see yeah. some CA there. Oh, the contrast is a little low there. And then like a really nice sharp thing pops yeah. up and you go, oh yeah, I can see that. And then it ends up being a Master Prime, a CP2, uh, Nikkor, like yeah. uh, whatever, you know, one of those kind of more modern, sharper lenses. Yeah. I think kind of, and, and like, you know, Solix was my first, like, first movie that was made under the umbrella of a studio and also, like, is a franchise film. Because, like, Mobland is a Lionsgate release, but it was made without a lot of involvement from anyone. And then, essentially, like, I think a distribute, you know, it's like a distributor sells it to Lionsgate and then it's sort of like a co- like a release by that or something. That's the Lionsgate MO, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then whereas Saw, I mean, technically Saw, I think, you know, 
when it was produced, I think it's, they discussed it as an independent production, but it's like, you know, that it's a Lionsgate property, you know, that it's going to release under the Lionsgate banner. And so I still had no studio involvement in terms of like setting the looks, watching anything like there was no, even pr- the only person that watched any of the lens tests were me and Kevin, the director. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, the two of us in a room, ultimately on a laptop because you know, the time was so compressed and then you're, you know, you sort of end up in this situation, I think where it's like, you're sort of like, I'm watching this like two hour test that I shot. And I don't even know if I can discernibly tell the difference between some of these, you know what I mean? And I'm having like, it's hard to get a director's attention. You know, they don't have a lot of time. So inevitably what ends up happening is you have to just like scan through it very quickly with them and be like, this is what I resonated with. What do you resonate with? You know? And then eventually you're just like, you're sort of like, I think for us, the big decision started with, I think I did four different camera tests. It started with shooting on the Venice and the Alexa mini or the mini at last. And then, uh, looking at three different lens sets on each of them. And then the next time we tested like, you know, four or five sets on the Venice because we had kind of settled, let's go with Super 35 with the Venice. And then I was testing, once we settled on a set of, set of lenses, then I was testing filters and light, like literally just like gels, you know, or like right. you had a sky panel set up and then a 5K with, you know, a variety of gels. And so I was testing those in order to see how they would fall. And also, so I didn't have a DOT on at the time, so I could build my LUTs with specific colors already built. Um, but it's, you know, that's the sort of thing where I'm not like a bits and like, I'm not like a zeros and ones, like sort of person, like looking at a chart doesn't do anything. Oh, it doesn't help anybody. It's great for building LUTs to match cameras. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like actually looking at them. I'm like, no, I actually want to just like go shoot a scene and then I'll know like, oh, this works or this doesn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Not like I'm looking at like. Christmas lights and a lamp and some like charts. And I'm like, I don't, what the, those are this. Yeah, no, those are only good for lens tests. Yeah. And that, and like for objectively looking at like, okay, that's how a point source will flare. That's how, you know, you, if, and you, I don't even really think you need a color chart, but if you don't put one in, people are going to call you an idiot, but like a great, a great card will just tell you how the lens skews, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, oh, but, oh, that's what I was going to say about the C500 actually it was like convincing people to use it. I'm like, it's, it's easier to use this camera than other cameras. A, cause I just know it, but B, like you're saying at a certain point, all these cameras are so nice. It comes down to workflow. Like the bits and bytes don't quite matter when everything is, looks so good. It, it comes down to what's easy to, you know, if you've got five lenses in front of you and they all kind of look the same, it's like, all right, well, which one's are all geared in the same place and like, right. Aren't going to shatter on me or like maybe, you know, are just the least expensive, you know, it, it, I think all those workflows, what's that quote, you know, like experts talk about logistics, you know, the amateurs, amateurs talk about something experts talk about logistics. (laughs) It's, it's some, some military general was just like, yeah, you know, when you're uh, younger, you talk about like, the translation would be like gear and, and focusing on that. And then, uh, when you're an adult, it is logistics. It's figuring out how to get the thing done with the correct result while still maintaining 
ease of work workflow. Yeah. I mean, even like, I think that's been something that steered me away from like, you know, even on saw, I would say that I steered away from actually vintage lenses partially because the time it takes to switch a lens. And also like my camera team, for the most part, there was stability within the camera department, but we did have people shift in and out. And like, you know, we did have a, a shutdown from COVID on that movie. And like, so you also need gear that like a variety of individuals can show up and know how to use and work. Um, and even on like this last movie I did, Bone Lake in Georgia, it's an erotic horror thriller. We wanted a really strong look. The director and I both love the Hawk V lights. Yeah. But part of why we aimed for the V lights was there's a 55 millimeter macro in that set. But unfortunately in Atlanta at the time, that was unavailable. And we were going through Keslow and I'm sure they had it, but, or, or if they didn't, they could sub rent it. But you're, when you're talking about running a set of lenses of that expensive, because the Hawks are just pretty expensive. Yeah. We were running into issue. Like we ended up having to create, carry specialty lenses for a lot of the movie and we couldn't. And frankly, we ended up after like a little bit of shooting, I ended up carrying a 14 millimeter spherical lens because we were doing enough multi-axis moves in a house that the wide angle anamorphic lens with the three foot close focus was killing us on these, like push in, pull out, move, you know, and it's like a long take that you can't, and like, we can't afford it. And frankly, anamorphic is giving us very little in terms of like, there's no real, I mean, it's the widest angle anamorphic in the set, whenever it is a 28 or a 35 or a 32, I don't remember, but it's like, whatever that lens was giving us, it's like, no, it's giving us a little bowing and some bokeh occasionally, but not really. Like it's a wide angle post. Yeah. So ultimately, yeah. So we just decided, you know, I was like, I need a 14 that I can just carry, you know what I mean? And not like fight. Like when we want these big wide angle masters, like we'll crop it in post and like, we'll get the shot, you know? So even on that, it's like, we spent all this time and energy and resources to get a very, you know, get the Hawk in a more, we used a I think we used a Hollywood black magic one, you know, with that. And like, we were pushing for a very specific, specific distinctive look, but ultimately at the end of the day, like both on that movie and saw, I carried extra lenses on saw, I carried a 200 millimeter and a 180. And I also carried a 12 millimeter. And it's like, there were enough times that I was like, I want this, or I need this, you know, and that we just carried them the whole show. And same like by Lake, we carried a probe lens the whole show. So it was like, oh, nice. we're doing enough, like. Yeah, we do some weird, fun pro blend stuff on that movie that I can't wait for people to see, which was difficult to like because it's a T13. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is that like it's the 11 or whatever? But yeah. yeah, so you're like, um, but yeah, like, you know, I had enough manpower and firepower that we could do that on that movie. And I I think I told the director after that movie, I was like, I'm not sure I'll shoot on the locks again for a long time because the amount of challenges we had with it using diopters and close focus was deeply challenging and restrictive. And at a certain point you have to say, well, you know, I've seen the movie and I'm like really happy with the way it looks, but then it's like, is there another set of lenses that we can get this with? Or is there something that we're not fighting the close focus of so much, you know, it, that 
I mean, I'm talking almost every shot we did was a diopter and involved. And it's just painstaking when you're trying to move quickly to constantly have the diopter be in and out. And there is a precision involved, which there is something I really like about that, which is like, you know, you can't, especially if you're using a diopter, you have a set range of focus. So like there is a precision involved in that. That's nice where you're like, this is the shot. Um, but you know, this was still the movie, the, the, even though the first movie I'd done for Shutter was 18 days with this director, her name is Mercedes Bryce Morgan. And then this movie I did with her was 18 days, you know, six day weeks. We just had a lot more money. So we scaled up in terms of what we could do and how we could do it. But, you know, ultimately like speed was still of the essence and it is on every project. And I do think if you let speed be the only determining factor, you, you know, you could end up, everyone would be like zoom lenses on, you know, the fastest possible camera. And I'm like, that's not necessarily the the look for every movie, you know, and, and especially because most zoom lenses can't open up past a two eight, there is something special that happens at a two or one three that a zoom lens just can't replicate. But, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just the right way to go. Yeah. The last zooms tested those, um, Tokina zooms, the Vista zooms, Mm -hmm. and those are, those are quite nice. And then, um, I don't know where they are. Um, Lawa sent me their Ranger full frame zooms. Yeah. Uh, and I'm noticing that all of these Chinese companies are, are suddenly coming out with really great lenses, but don't, you know, like the, the Ranger zooms are great. You know, they open up to a two, eight, I believe full frame, um, geared nicely, very lightweight, little long. But yeah. certainly no character in, you know, they're like optically yeah. perfect. There's a little CA, but like optically, basically perfect. You know, they don't breathe or anything. Um, and that that's great for a lot of reasons. But sometimes you do want a little something that a zoom doesn't quite give. Yeah. I, I did want to ask about lighting because yeah. in a move in a movie like um uh shit what was the the john travolta one you said bob lands yeah yeah it's called american metal and the distributor changed the name and we were just like what the fuck yeah like american metal is so much better than bob lands about far far done i was i was the (laughs) second unit on this one movie that went through like we're we were filming it and then and uh the director ed was like i don't i don't know what this is actually going to be called they keep changing it and it ended up being detective night and then there was like three, there's three of them, but, uh, we thought it was going to be called like third night or something like that. And in, in any case, um, it was a Bruce Willis film. Uh, I, well, we had Brandon Cox shoot that or was it? Uh, he did. Yeah. 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 They, well, they, I interviewed Brandon, uh, his podcast, I think is coming out this week or next week. Oh yeah. Um, as the time of this recording people. Is, yeah. Um, cause what happens is I end up interviewing, if I interview four people in a month yeah. that's the month right but sometimes like it's a word season i end up interviewing 15 people yeah and then it's like well when's this episode coming out like i i know <laughs> i know like but i'm not if i dump them all in one month we don't have uh things for people to listen you know i want the audience to have something to right come back to every week um anyway lighting so Mobland, a little more yeah. uh naturalistic versus something like saw which obviously i have not seen saw but uh the your saw x 
but I was wondering like what kind of, cause Saw is in, in a lot of ways all about kind of, um, I, I guess extravagance. Like it is, it is out there, yeah. you know, every, everything. The first film was such a, like an indie darling. And then it was like, what if we just murder everyone in the grossest way possible? And everyone's like, yeah. So, um, yeah. Talk to me about the kind of like lighting, the approach to the lighting that film and like some of the fun things that kind of, you know, gave you the fizzies when you were able to really lean into that potentially uh, uh, genre and, and the specific style of Saw. Yeah. So for a film like, for a film like Moblin, I like, you know, I designed a visual style guide for that movie and it's very much was pulling from naturalism. We're looking at images from Larry Clark and Gordon Parks and a bunch of these sort of photographers, as well as looking at, you know, movies like Place Beyond the Pines and Donnybrook and of course, No Country for Old Men and stuff like that. And so for us, like Moblin does have like a much more heightened naturalism to it. Um, it's practical lighting, it's natural lighting that, you know, it's existing ambient light that we're shaping and stuff like that. For a film like Saw X, I was brought in with, you know, part of the immediate conversation was the last two Saw movies, Spiral and Jigsaw, deviated from what the franchise had done. Um, they were two, three, five, they were cleaner, they were more blockbuster in terms of the style, aesthetic, and the feel. And part of what Kevin and myself wanted to do was how do we walk into this film? It's set between Saw 1 and Saw 2. Yes. Um, yeah, so it is, you know, obviously the actors are older and we're not doing de-aging techniques where, you know, we are, it's, it's, that was a big question and conversation for me, which is like, you know, how much do I try to glamorize photographically these actors to look at a certain age versus, you know, it's got Amanda in it, it's got John Kramer in it, um, versus accepting that the audience has to make that, you know, that a mental cheat and be like, okay these people are 20 years older than they were. And that is what it is. And we accepted this is set between one and two. We, and, we bought it with like Obi-Wan and shit. People are willing to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And also like the Irishman has a bit of a, a deep fake quality to the whole movie that mm -hmm. is a bit crazy and weird and off putting. And even though, I, you know, some amazing filmmaking. Um, and so we knew we weren't going to have that kind of post-production funds. So part of the vintage quality of the lenses, part of that, Yes, that's also a factor that we're considering. And so for and the, the feral one, probably. Exactly. But ultimately, like, it gives us like this ethereal quality where it's blurring, you know, it's, it's sort of blooming the highlights. It's, and there's a deep, like steep fall off in this movie, really sharp contrast, really, you know, heavy, thick contrast. So very dense blacks, very, and we knew we were going to sort of for us, the world of Saw was something that has a lot of giallo colors that, you know, I sort of described Saw as like seven by way of a new metal video. Like it, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, ex everything has a bit of an exclamation point to it. And so the color in the movie, I wanted the color in this movie to sort of, you know, speak to the touchstones of Saw 1, you know, the original Saw, Saw 2 and Saw 3. Like I looked at those movies, I looked at the color palettes of those movies, and inevitably those movies came out at a time where DI was sort of becoming a thing, like this is early 2000s. They really pushed the DI and the grade like extremely far on those movies. I yeah, wanted memory to... of the first Saw was very blue, very contrasty. Yes. 
Yeah. Very grainy. Yeah. And that's, that's accurate. And then two has this very like ochre yellow, kind of rusty yellows, jaundice kind of colors throughout it. And there's, you'll find in some of the traps in Saw 1, like the bear, the reverse bear trap, you'll find like the razor wire trap, um, where it's like the guy inside that razor pit. Those are very like arsenical green, very like, you know, a very rusty, dark, weird kind of green. So I was taking those colors and looking at them and then our production designer, Anthony Stavely and the director, Kevin, um, and I were all looking at those colors and talking about our palette. In Saw X, you know, the script in, in this much is available even in the trailer and sort of online right now. Um, there's, you know, the film sort of follows John Kramer. It takes his point of view. It's, it's very much set in his world and it's subjectively in his space. Um, it follows his emotional story. He is the protagonist of the film. And so the camera work and the lighting also bends to that. And in our movie, it's like John Kramer starts in the U.S. He discovers the possibility of a, a kind of cancer treatment that uh, is experimental and not, you know, being performed in the U.S. And so he ends up going to Mexico in order to get this experimental cancer treatment. In the process of that, he ends up discovering that he's been scammed. And then, you know, the people that have scammed him, you know, become a part of this, uh, these trap sequences. So in our world, we sort of are playing with, there's really a, we, the movie starts in a very just dramatic character drama sort of fashion. You know, we're with him, we're a part of his world. We're using blue, monochromatic silvers and blues and whites and grays for our US. And then when the movie ends up in Mexico, we're leaning into those golden colors, those lush greens, we're leaning into these kind of maroon crimsons, these golden colors. And then once the, the uh, scan starts to happen, we sort of, you know, we arrive at like a very beautiful, like sterile white, and you'll see it in the trailer. Like there's these sterile kind of clinical whites, you know, within this sort of this cancer, uh, surgery that's happening. And so the movie kind of arcs into this moment where it's like the most like clinical neutral palette. And then it arcs out of that. And as it kind of moves from this, you know, this sequence and we have to figure out what is the most saccharine like version of song? Like what is the most like, you know, what is the brightest, most cheery, like high key version of songs? Some of those images are in the trailer even, you know, and it's, it is how we light it. Um, it is like. Once we sort of, you know, the movie still has deep shadows. It's, it's light sort of, you know, pinpricking into, uh, darkness. It is kind of like etching thing images out of the blacks, you know, it is sort of pervasive. Right. And then the question is, how do I work this palette that's been built into the design and is also in the wardrobe into the lighting itself. And so mm. I'm looking at, okay, well, it, you know, before things shift in the movie, it's more golden yellows. And when they shift, they're more, uh, ochre and more like you are specifically using an Oklahoma yellow. Um, it's something I played with on the very first movie I did. And I just love the look of it. So this is actual gels, not the, uh, uh not the we're using, gels in the sky panel. It's both or whatever. Um, yeah, it's both like ultimately most of the movie like takes you know, once this scam sort of happens and things, you know, the abduction sequences happen, um, the abduction sequences for me, like I sort of saw the movie as happening in three dimensional color space. So every scene has, 
a primary color that is playing over top of the scene. Within the background, we're working in accent colors and we're working tertiary colors within that. And then we're using some degree of like keying and filling to sort of play with those palettes. So, and I knew that even though in the, in this course of the movie and most of the traps are set within a you know, a main game space, I would say, which is typical of most of the Saw movies. Um, I didn't want every trap to have the same look across the board because you're talking about maybe two thirds of the movie or half the movie all playing out, you know, in a certain, uh, sort of trap space. Right. And so for me, what that meant was if we jump into the mindset of John Kramer, I know I'm having to shoot 360. I know I need to think I'm going to see everything. So I need to design a world that we can set cameras inside of that has dimensionality that has, you know, darkness and depth and gravitas to it. And so for me, what I did was we sort of designed a base lighting for the warehouse and for this main trap space, which is industrial fixtures. It's in, you know, all industrial housings. I worked with the set decorator and the art uh, director as well as a production designer to design what those would be. And so what I did was I took the space, I threw it in Photoshop and part of the challenge is the sets were not built into the space until later in the process. Cause you need approval from producers and director. You need, you know, it's a big spend, right. To do all that kind of construction and all that sort of work. So I'm only seeing all those build, set builds later in the process. And I'm still having to think about how I'm going to light it in advance. Cause I have to rent gear. I have to rent all the tools and know what I need. In our case, it was a giant warehouse where in Mexico city, and I basically tented all four sides of the warehouse. We put sky panels and maxi brutes and, you know, around the edges of the house, like, or around the edges of the warehouse, like Frank, you know, and they're sort of designed to push light in and they're kind of my background layer. Then I have lights up lighting and doing lighting around the edges of the, the space. I've got like green sort of industrial, like um, they're not puck lights, but it's Astera, you know, AX1s or AX3s or X5s. Well, you heard of the hydro panels? I have. I, I got a box of them right here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I need them. I'll let you borrow them. <laughs> I mean, they're, yeah. Like one of the challenges was what do we have available to us? It was like, you know, in Mexico with the gaffer I had, it was like the aperture, whatever this set, the bulbs. They yeah. Oh, the bulbs. B7C. I think. Yeah. Those lights. So I had a range of LED and then what I had done is we basically, I think I had 40 or 50 lights designed into this space. And then I had probably 50 emergency lights for some of the, like for some of the cues in the movie. So essentially what we did was we designed base lighting for the room and then ended up designing every trap has its own unique lighting look, but because it's built within the world of John Kramer, for me, that meant when a trap is initiated circuits are timed with that trap that flip on and bring on lights overhead or within the trap. And then when the trap ends, all circuits associated with the trap shut off. So the trap itself shuts off all the lights connected to the trap shut off and over top of it. So you have this, it's like a great way to fit into a story. Yeah. And you have this game room that's sort of constantly shifting. And so it gives you the space for like tonal shift within the movie, as well as then what I was able to do is backtrack what those palettes were and then the abductions could be like a really strong color that was reflective of a tertiary color in that future trap that you see in the movie. So it's sort of like designing color separation because I wanted 
to have those arsenical greens, those crimson reds, those deep blues. You know, we were very much, we didn't want cyan in the movie. We wanted it to be green or blue, but not cyan. Cyan felt too storybook. It felt too Pan's Labyrinth too like, you know, Harry there's Potter. just, yeah. And there's like a blockbuster feeling when I see a cyan or teal, I'm kind of like, I made a blockbuster and we wanted something grimier, something a little grittier. And so for us, it was like, I designed this space, but even, you know, like even saying I designed this, that meant that I'm working with a Mexican crew. Their English is not amazing. Um, some of them is, but for the most part, I don't have very good Spanish. So I actually- 10 years like, in LA and you don't know. Yeah, I know. Own it. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, just don't know very much. I know like, I knew how to like ask for, you know, like Verde and like, you know, Roja, like they need green or I need red, but no, like I just have bad Spanish. And so That'll, you got to learn the whistle, but yeah, <laughs> you put it in the, and they always go, yeah, I got it. <laughs> I started, but I created a document with location stills, like Google doc. I kept everything in Google docs and I had a document in Google docs that had every practical listed for the movie It had every, um, lighting setup for the movie. And so there were overheads, there were a mixture of overheads and drawings where I would just take a location still and I would paint in like, it's an M90 pushing this from this side inside all the colors like worked out there. And then for the material in the trap space, one of the great challenges you face is we're shooting the control room out and then shooting the main floor out at separate times because you can't have your crew moving up and down, up and down, up and down all the time. It's too much time. But as a result, you're looking through the windows of the trap, like the control room and seeing the world outside. And you have to know where am I headed with my world outside while I'm shooting inside this, uh, control room. And so what I did was I created a document that every scene listed, and then I did reference images, um, for every scene and I had it beat it out that way. And then I did just one that had no visuals and was just the color palettes listed for every single scene. That way, when I got into the thick of it and we're jumping from scene to scene to scene where there's a lot of intercutting because it's saw on there just is a lot of intercutting. I think there's 4,000 edits in the movie. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a fast cut. Um, I had to have that sort of plot plotted out so that I never lost track of it. And in that process, it's like, you know, I had to have all those units available and rent it. And then once we did get into a situation where like I operated for four or six weeks on the movie. I got COVID on the fourth week um, and the director tested positive four days later. So we did shoot for two days where I had COVID and I just was in a trailer right off the set with like DNC running into two monitors and my lighting, you know, plots. I had uh, my ops on headsets and the gaffer on a walkie. And I had the ACAM operator who'd been on the movie and he also was our well, he bumped from B-cam to A-cam and he was our second unit DP and field promotion. <laughs> exactly. And so I basically was like, well, Edgar, Lizania, like you're like, you communicate with Kevin about setting these frames because frankly, Kevin had, you know, seven pages of shot lists for every, I mean, a lot of the traps are shot in a day and a half. So it is not like, it is very fast, you know, and, and we did do one final day that was all inserts. Um, and so we were able to clean up a lot on our insert day, but you're shooting, you know, a ton of prosthetics, a ton of stunts, a ton of special effects, like just a lot of every trap has every department is playing in some way. Right. Right. And so, and those don't get kicked off to second unit for you guys then. 
because they're just so no. integral to the story. No, the inserts are the just the, the just all the all the trap stuff. No, so. I mean saw is the traps. You know what I mean? Like everyone is going to see the traps, and so our second unit was mostly like landscape stuff from Mexico. It was like that kind of pretty chill gig for them. <laughs> yeah, and I think we only had three days of second unit. Everything else was all main unit. Um, so for and we were running two cameras. So it's like, yeah, the traps are integral. And, and the traps are the the film. Like, you know, yeah. everyone's going to Saw to watch the traps. So for us, it's like, it's a lot of fun. You know, I mean, it's really violent. You're showing up to set with like dismembered legs and arms on, you know, and, and you're like, oh yeah, this is my workspace. This is what I'm doing here. Um, but for me, it was also, I, I did, I was able to ring lights for, I think we had one or two days of pre-rigging, but this is all happening while they're, testing traps and stunts on the main game space. So like, you know, you can't run a condor on a space that there's a stunt team right. like in the way of. And so we ended up having to do all of our, the only like pre-lighting I got to do was the Saturday before we started on a Monday, we finished finalizing where all the units were set. And then I was able to take my black magic around and set rough levels because I didn't even have the main cameras available to me. And then, so you're not a light meter guy. I would use a light meter, but in this case, you're looking at, um, I was looking at basically what I did was I looked at all four directions of the warehouse and I, and put a person in and then was like, you know, the one advantage of a movie like Saw is once people are in their traps, I mean, they're not, they're not going anywhere. No, I kill a lot of this. <laughs> so you are actually able to like, you know, you can figure out where you're keying them from. Inevitably, it's harder to key from below or from the side because the nature of the traps, but right. um, you still have to. And like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a part of it. So I do use a light meter, but in a case where I have like 40 different units and I'm like, you know, I wanted to know when we turn a Venice on, it was going to look roughly what like I needed it to. Right. I just used my black magic with false color and a monitor and just, you know, looked around the space and was like, this is good enough. And then, once we got into it, luckily, I when I got COVID, um, we were already into it enough that I could, you know, sit and dial units. And I had like eye lights on both the cameras. And then I was able to at least still communicate, hey, can you bring a fixture out and like lift their eyes or whatever. But, you know, we're shooting 80 shots a day or whatever. It's a crazy amount of coverage because you're yeah. doing the trap all in one day. So it's like, you know, and the, and the, the aesthetic approach is like, mostly handheld for once we were into that material, but then, you know, we need our sort of buttons, like, you know, the big dolly push, the techno crane, you know, I think we had four or five days of techno crane. So you're trying to figure out how to work those shots in and like land the head. And, you know, I also was shooting under crane, you know, this classic circular dolly track under cranked, like, you know, low shutter speed kind of, you know, whipping sort of shots and stuff like that. So, right. It, it's like a, yeah, you just like, you're working with the speed that you have, but then it, it, I sort of looked at it as like, I'm lighting a space that has like fall off and that has like, you know, these deep like chiaroscuro sort of like shape and shadows. And I'm using that kind of, and, and, you know, at, when we're looking at pre, in pre-production, of course, we're looking at the early Saw movies. We decided on 185 partially for that reason, because all the other movies have done that. But frankly, in our 
traps faces. It's like you have monitors, you have close-ups of John's face, you have, you know, traps that involve height disparity between the control room and then, you know, so there's a boxiness to some of that, that just 185 made a lot of sense. And so we actually shot four three with a 185, like, um, frame, you know, pulled out of that because Kevin, I was like, do you usually shoot, you know, when you, cause Kevin's edited for his entire career, he's been an editor and he edited saw one through five. He's done a lot of other horror. Oh, no shit. Mm-hmm. And he oh, had cool. directed six and seven, and then he's directed like this movie called Jackals and some other movies. And um, so Kevin has, you know, gr- he's really a great storyteller, and he has a lot of he shoots like an editor. That's part of why there's so much coverage. You know, they'll uh, without giving anything away. It's like you know a basic something that happens in a movie. It's like someone getting hit in the face and like falling to the ground. Like you know, some directors I've worked with, we would do it in one shot, and we're pushing in, and they hit and fall, we tilt. That with Kevin, it's like a shot for this, a shot for the land, a shot for them sliding, you know, across the floor. And I see the cut and it works, you know, but it's a different, uh, it's a different way of showing action where it's like the action happens in these beats. But then you, you do center punch a little more. And he's like, yeah, I usually end up reframing on almost every movie. And I was like, well, one of the challenges of 185 at 69.9 is just, you have very little reframe if an operator fucks up or whatever. And it happens, you know, including myself, like you just, it happens when you're moving fast. So, um, once I looked at the specs, I was like, well, we're technically not losing anything on the left and right when we go to the four, three versus the 17 by nine. So I was like, let's shoot four, three. And it didn't become a thing we used a ton, but here and there it was like, you know, it added a little bit of data, you know, and it added some time for processing, but overall it's like it gave us that flexibility to make those adjustments um which was super valuable and and you yeah, release it in imax oh my god we could i guess but i don't think it's <laughs> if you have you want to see your gore in imax i mean look it would be fun to see it in imax we've I've seen, i guarantee you some psychopaths want to see it in IMAX. Like, <laughs> i've seen the hdr i've seen the sdr i've seen the dcp and then kevin just watched the dolby digital so like we have seen it, you know, and those, that process is a little frustrating because it's like, unless you, every screen is slightly different. And mm-hmm. even if you're, you know, we did our color up in Toronto and then we watched the masters down in LA and it's like, I wrapped doing the DCP the day we finished color. So like, technically I was able to set some of the like transfer for from the DCP to the SDR and HDR, but not. I wasn't in the room for it, most of it. I'd set like some, you know, scan through it and pa- get those passes. Cause we had two weeks to do color, but it was technically nine days. And frankly, it, you know, is 4,000 edits and it's a lot of material to put together. And the colorist I was working with did a fantastic job, but also he was an in-house colorist at the post house that had the, the deal. And so frankly, like he hadn't watched the movie when he started, you know, and I was like, oh, like, we got to set looks for the movie, which took us a couple. Of, yeah. So anyway, you know, we took that whole time to get the DCP in the right place. And then, yeah, you watch the HDR and the SDR and you're like, well, I would like to change this little thing or this. But by that point in the process, it's like, no, this is the QC pass. Like, unless there is a technical flaw, not something you dislike, but an actual problem that requires them to spend the money to open the project back up and, you know, finesse it, you're not going to get that. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, it's a process. Like it really, you know, it was a lot of fun to light this movie and it was a lot of like, I loved leaning into those, you know, those big color, like when people see it, they're going to see the Giallo references. They're going to see, you know, they're going to see like this heightened color palette and the traps, I go a little more heightened, but ultimately my question when I'm shooting that is like, what's going to make the prosthetics look good. What's going to make the blood look good. And then also for saw fans, you know, what is going to speak to the worlds that they've seen, but then be our own twist on it. You know, we're not, the colors are not being added in the gray. The colors are baked in, in the lighting and, you know, then the grade is accentuating that. So that a lot of my time was spent actually thinking about, I think we had problem. Yeah. A lot of every light is embedded into the space and it's built into the space. It functions as a practical light. And then occasionally for certain sequences, yes, I came in and I cleaned it up more. Um, but it's on, with like on an egg or an additional key or whatever. Yeah. A lot of it would be, there's certain spaces in the room. We just would, we would soft, we would, you know, cut it with like, like diffusion and then we would bring something in to fill their faces in. But what I found was the more that I, the more glamorized we went, the less it felt like saw. And the more like, as the movie progresses, like my, this, the wings of the room are starting to close down and take us more into the center of the room. And I had those lit with like four orbiters from above. And they, I think they were going through opal, but they were very hard. And the more the movie gets into that, the more you're starting to get double shadows and downlights, which is traditionally not what I would do. <laughs> right. You know, it's not what I would call classically appealing. And frankly, when you have older actors, specifically older actresses, it is not the approach they want. But at the same time, you're talking about people covered in blood, people covered in sweat. You know, this is, I wanted the movie to move from more dutiful into more brutal. And, and by going from softer wrapping kind of like softer light and then to like, bah, you know, it does create an aesthetic, you know what I mean? And I really honestly like laid awake and that night a lot in Mexico worried about if I was like mistreating the actors with mm -hmm. the lighting approach I was taking, yeah. because I was like, this is so gruesome, you know, just, it is like any any lines they have in their faces, any sort of like, you know, imperfections in their faces are going to like be raked by these lights and lifted up. And I just, but then when I would fix it, I would be like, it's just not as ugly as it should be. So there was a balancing act and like, frankly, time, you know, every time I brought it up to Kevin, we're like, well, there's probably 15 shots of the movie. I would love a do over. You know, I mean, there's probably more than that, but there's at least 15 I can think of. And Kevin's like, we'd still be there shooting this movie if you were lighting every shot, you know? And you're like, you have to accept that like that is kind of what it is. And like, what's been exciting is like, I was able to be there for the, the horror convention they released the trailer at. And it's like the audience just fucking eats, you know, they really are so excited to see these colors back this level of darkness back, this level of grittiness and just kind of, you know, they, they resonate with it. They know the aesthetic of Saw. And yeah. so it's actually been exciting to watch and them connect with it. And, um, I felt like what I was able to bring to the table was to bring like an elegance to what we're doing and also 
like because I was able to operate for four to six weeks, I was able to actually bring like a subjectivity and trust. And like, frankly, saw X's, when I read the script, I was thrilled because I'm like, A, I thought it was the best script of the franchise. B, I felt like this is the first movie. You can't, you're forgetting the first one because it set it off and like whatever. Right. But this is the, the first, first film is its own thing. Yeah. This is the first movie in the franchise that lives in John Kramer's head. And like, you know, this is the first movie where we're with him. And Tobin Bell is a legend and he's a great performer. He's a very kind person. He's, you know, deeply passionate about his work. He's, you know, still will arrive on set hours in advance. And we did have it because of his age at this point, it was stipulated we couldn't shoot at night with him, which, you know, thank God we like did day for night instead of all this like night work that would have killed us all and, and earned a nap. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. But he's, he has, you know, been at it or, I mean, he's been in everything where like Mississippi burning to, you know, to these films. So it's like, right. he, he's a fantastic performer and for audiences to finally get a chance to like sit with him. And it's actually like, yeah, that was such an honor and, you know, so delightful. And then of course it's exciting when like Billy the puppet's on. Cause I'm like, this is my chance like Billy, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, like let's do like big giallo backlights and like, you know, kind of go for it. And like. John Kramer is a bit theatrical anyway. Like he's designing these like beautifully ornate traps to like teach people life lessons. Like, you know, I can get away with a lot. Right. So, um, yeah, like it was a lot like, yeah, totally different. Every movie is different. Every movie, like I jumped from Saw and on Bone Lake, you know, we were referencing a lot of Crudson, a lot of Todd Heido, you know, it's a much more. Mobland is very like dirty and documentary-ish, like a bit of a docu-reel, like, you know, kind of a neo-noir thing where it's dark and it's got these like, you know, built-in colors, but then it's very like naturalistic and dark. And then Saul's dark in, its, uh, in another way and it's gritty and scuzzy and grimy and, you know, textural and has all the, you know, poisonous kind of color. And then your, you know, Bow Lake, we were going for a very like sexy, you know, uh, very like erotic kind of film. And so there's a lot more, it's actually this like French photography, we liked a lot of names, Stefan Coutel, I think is his name, but he did this um, book called, and I'm probably butchering all the French bullshit, but Insom like Insomnies or Insom or something like that. But it's very just like beautiful colors, like purpley twilight colors and like Crutzen does that too really well but it's like you know so every movie you do you do have these opportunities to play with visual language and and play with like unique you know palettes and unique approaches and right now I'm just like trying to take a lot of risks and they don't all work you know I mean the critics fucking hated the handheld work on Bobland like they just were like oh I hate that it's so handheld and I'm like well we had to make that decision for our schedule, but also it was the decision the director and I have been playing with in all of our commercial work together. And we love Battle of Algiers and French Connection and Place Beyond the Pines. And like, you know, yeah, did I have, I had my, there were three operators on Moblin. There was myself and B camera operator and our second unit DV. And like, you can't make a movie in 11 days. You just, and I'm like, we right. shop. And so some people hate it. And for some people, they'll be like, I love that it's gritty and it's, kind of messy and it's not, you know, ornate. And so like, right. it's all like we're playing with the range, you know, we have a lot of dolly work and 
shit on sticks and a lot of stuff that's handheld and techno crane and you know some steady cam in there so it's like and then for bone lake there's two handheld shots in the whole movie like it's or maybe like two little mini sequences that are handheld the rest of it's you know very controlled so i love getting to work with different directors and getting to play in different spaces totally and um yeah it's kind of what i love about it you know i have a lot of anxious nights sitting up thinking about all these things <laughs> yeah well at least those anxious nights aren't the, the classic you know i've spoken to a lot of like older dps and they're like man i do not miss the waiting for dailies and just sitting there and going like oh fuck is did uh, that was the most important scene is it okay you know <laughs> yeah i've never shot a movie on film and i would love to um but i do think my anxiety would be my anxiety would be pretty um well poignant well, I, uh, I, I did want to add, you had mentioned it at the very beginning of this conversation, how, um, and I wanted to follow up on it and then I forgot until just no. now. Um, when you were saying that, you know, when you, when you initially shot digital, it was all about basically working in the, in the toe of the image because anything would blow out and look like shit. So when you yeah. did that first transition into film, um, had you shot, I assume you shot film photography before. So you had like a, or maybe not. Yeah. Not much. I had shot, I had shot maybe four rolls of 35. Though. Oh, okay. <laughs> so really not much. And I, I had shot one of them. The very first 35 millimeter roll I shot was, it was a 800 T Cinestill. And oh, I, that's a lovely to, Yeah. I went to Detroit with somebody and we were scouting for a project that unfortunately didn't happen, but it was a really beautiful post-apocalyptic idea. And we broke into a lot of places that, you know, were pretty grungy and, so we shot a bunch of stuff there, just like, you know, in scouting, both digitally and on. I shot like a couple of rolls of 35, but the camera, I since discarded it, but the camera I had at the time, I hadn't tested it and it was mm. used camera and the roll didn't rewind. And so I popped the back of the camera off and I was in a hotel room and I had every light off, but like something in the far corner. That'll still and get you. It did. And it was beautiful, but that all that to say, like, I had not, I didn't have a lot of experience with it. I was very like, yeah, I hadn't shot, I'd shot maybe one roll of 35 millimeter still like film. So when I actually shot my first job on film, I'd actually never shot anything on film. So um, that, that was going to be my question yeah. was, uh, what did you learn through that experience about lighting for? Cause I, I try to ask every DP about yeah. the film digital thing. Cause I think a lot of people are interested because most people won't. Yeah have the chance to shoot film these days, but like, uh, lighting for film or, and, um, just shooting film in general, what are some of those considerations that you learned about, you know, obviously learning <laughs> it's, it's pretty fascinating when you go, Oh, we need way more light. Like you, you need, it's not just an exposure thing. Cause it, Oh, I can just shoot 500 speed film. Like I would shoot 500 digital. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So if you underexpose that by a stop, you're fucked. Yeah. I think, well, the main things that I did, one was I rated, um, I rated the camera for about two thirds of a stop. Like we shot on 500 T film right. and then I rated it for 320 because mm -hmm. I tend to underexpose anyway. So I was like, I'm just gonna like, you know, sort of set myself up for success by doing that. And we were going for a darker look. Um, that's so, the, the dude with the bloody hand and the eyeball. Yep. 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 And that was, yeah, that was on 16 and like we, um, yeah, same approach in terms of like three-dimensional color space, you know, where I'm playing with background and foreground and that, and I'm, 
I think I shot everything two stops under, um, actually, because I wanted to start from that, but I had already rated it 320 to just like keep myself from going too far. And there were, I think the main thing was just, it didn't end up feeling that different. It just, I used the meter a lot more, you know what I mean? And like, inevitably I don't meter much with digital because I just can see it. Yeah. And color too. Yeah. So it's just the speed of like pulling a meter out and then being like, oh, I'm going to take this reading. And I'm just like, I don't need that. But on this, I was taking shitloads of readings. And then, um, which ended up being like, yeah, I, I think the main learning was just, I just love the way that film, like the way the highlights roll off. I love the grain. I love, and the texture. I love the way that the colors sort of like mush together and blend a bit more. Yeah. Uh, there's just like a, you know, that like sort of red rim you get around the lights, which is less of a, more of a lens thing and less of a, the film thing, but it is the film and the way that it like registers over exposure. So that was like bouncing off the rim jet, right? Like the light goes, yeah. goes through all the, the layers and then bounces back into that red layer on yeah. high contrast. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So, so all of that was the part of the appeal. And then I actually did a, I did a commercial on 16 with the same director and Joe show and that was in a way more difficult because we shot six frames a second and did under cranking oh it damn. was an african-american who was our lead and we were also doing like deep like you know steep contrast with lots of darkness and lighting a basketball court like a full gym and then we did some daytime exterior work which you know i just gave the director the camera and set the stop and that was like go crazy and so like I think the advantages were, the advantages were I'm actually like my paranoia about things I've already seen. I can be a bit like perfectionist and fidgety. Um, and like, I didn't like, like this bone like was my first union film and I wasn't able to operate the camera because I joined the union and while like in pre-production and they were like, you're not going to be able to get a letter of intent and, and like be able to actually put yourself in the operating shoes. They're like, maybe you'll get top rate four days in this 18 day movie. Like, so I was like, well, I'll just accept that this is where my career is kind of going right now and just, you know, try to learn and grow. And so I ended up at the tent a lot on that movie and I didn't like that. And, but the, you know, the still, the images look great. And I was able to dial in like, uh, images pretty substantially doing that. But I think with film, I was sort of like, well, we know the range of what's possible, you know, so let's like, I don't, I don't have to worry so much. I can just like, you know, and I still, I still kept like a DSLR or black magic, like set to the same stop just so I could do a quick, like, Hey, right. my completely full of shit here. And, um, I used to yeah. use Polaroids to do that. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> I got unreal. Yeah. But it, I would say like what I loved were the results. Like, Sometimes with digital, you see that you see it on set and then you get back and you look at it and you're disappointed by the results. And with film, my experience has been, it's got something unexpected every time. And like, even the rollouts, you know, look beautiful and well, like, these are always fun. Yeah. And you're just like, for the sound of it, that's terrifying. Yeah. And so part of me is like, I really do want to shoot in there. Oh, you know, I've done a music video that has a narrative structure to it and I've done a commercial on it, but I. I haven't actually gotten to do a narrative project. And part of the challenge of that was also on both of those projects, the director and I were putting in money or time 
you know, we neither of us was making money. And so we weren't backed so heavily that I could just be like, let's just go waste a roll of film or let's just go shoot some like fun imagery together. And I want to underexpose this to the breaking point and overexpose this to the breaking point. So ultimately I would say I played it, not played it safe because I still was taking some risks with those images, but I played it safer in the sense that I'm like, I'm not going to like, you know, shoot this four stops under and then try to bring it, you know, I was like, no, like I'm going to protect my negative and like, I'm going, you know, I was just a little more conscientious of that. Um, but you know, I love the results and like there, there is something about it that just, I just can't lay it, you know, I add green to stuff. I fuck up the image. I do all this, but I just, it's just not quite the same. And, um, you know, I think film has its place for all the reasons that it, it's been around for so long. Yeah. Well, and I also think like, I, I am a firm believer that you can get, let's say 95% of the way there shooting on a Venice and then making it look like how do you think film should look? And that's great, but it does take a lot of effort or it can take a lot of effort. And yeah. there is something to be said about, um, you know, I, I have a theory that friction in any form will stop you from creating. <laughs> so like I was, I was talking to this one kid on Reddit the other day where he was like, I, I have this, Canon DSLR, but I really want this Fuji film. Am I being stupid? And everyone was like, yeah, you're being stupid. Learn to take photos, dude. And I was like, to be fair, if you don't want to pick up that DSLR, you're not going to take pictures. Even if you're the, if you love photo, everyone was trying to tell this kid like, oh, you don't love photography. You're, you know, borderline telling him he's a poser. And I was like, but if you have a tool like a camera, the little Fuji film, whatever it was, XT20 or something, and it makes you want to pick it up and use it, that's, Honestly, that velocity is going to carry you further than being an expert. So in the same way, like, yeah, you can make digital look like film, but if shooting film gets you what you want quicker and you don't have to think about that anymore, again, that velocity can carry you a lot further. Certainly there's workflow considerations, but, um, I, I, I've kind of flip-flopped on my, on my position on like the importance of film. And now I'm like, actually, I think it is more important than I used to kind of give, give it credit for. Cause I love shooting film, but I never thought of it as being like necessary. And now I'm like, there, there are definitely like reasons to want to shoot it. Yeah. I mean, it's just even, you know, it's like, there was never going to be an opportunity for me to do a film out from like for Saw. And it's like, I would have loved that. We talked about it for all these movies because the, frankly, for Bob, like for Saw, I have nine days to come for Bob, it's three. You know, and it's like, cool. Uh, this isn't, you know, there's no worry is wild. <laughs> yeah. The only reason we were able to do it was Jacob McKee was the colorist and Jacob's fantastic and does a lot of short form. And I'd worked with him a few times and he just, our process on that was he sent me a bunch of like probably 45 stills and then I on frame IO and then I went through, gave notes on all of them and then got another batch and they were much closer. And then, so by the time I went in, it's like the movie actually was already like dialed. And then I was just like watching the movie, hitting problem spots, you know what I mean? And basically doing that for the course of like three, like six hour days or something, you know, it's not enough time, uh, but it is enough time that you can at least like, you can kind of get a sense, you know, most of the time I'm not 
it's just different on every movie. I always ask for as many days as I can get with color, but sometimes, you know, they just, they don't want to go, like they just refuse to spend money there, which is crazy, but it's, it's such a vital part of the image. Like it's not, it's not just polishing. Like the cameras was that, that uh, Steve Yedlin kind of idea of like the camera's just a data collection device. Whereas with film, like we were saying, like you get the image there and the color really is polishing, but like it, I've said this a few times on this podcast, like cinematography has one foot squarely in the color grade. Like it's not, it, they are inextricably linked. You can't, yeah. you know, de- undervaluing that is, is you do so at your own peril in it, many it, cases. Sort of like, and it's the most insane thing to me because you're like, we have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars getting a certain camera system, getting the lenses, right? Analyzing the lens, building these fucking sets, building like doing all this work. And then you're going to like, we're going to run it through something that will change the tonality and palette of every single one of those decisions. Right. right? And if we're not going to invest in that process, you're going to end up with some bar results. And like that just is so mind boggling. In fact, I learned, like I colored both of those things I shot on 16 millimeter. I colored because partially I've colored, you know, I, Colored one of the movies I shot and I've colored a movie someone else shot because when I first started, I just couldn't afford colorists. And right. so I was middle resolved. And, but the advantage is also, I've seen what, you know, what can you do with an image? And like, usually what happened, like, uh, Lobland, I have all the raw files. So I did a mock-up of everything and I've mm-hmm. done that on some movies. I've kind of giving up doing it because what I found with colorists is doesn't matter how many references I give them from other movies or even stills I've locked up from this movie, they are going to do their own thing and I'm going to have to sit with them and find it together. And like, right. that's just the nature of the beast. And like, there's a couple colors I've worked with who I'm like, you get me, you know, and like, we don't have to sit through a bunch of bullshit to get there. But in general, it's like all of these people are working with, you know, hundreds of people probably hundreds of DPs, maybe not, maybe 50 DPs, whatever. They're working with a lot of different DPs in a lot of different contexts. They might be jumping from a toothpaste commercial to your movie and like, mm-hmm. they might be able to do your movie because they're doing the toothpaste commercial, but those are very different aesthetic, you know, driven as different aesthetically. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it really matters. I think you, you're totally right that they can't be separated and I feel for the cinematographers in my life that don't have any understanding of resolve because I have a very good understanding of resolve to the point that I will talk to the colorists about the node chain and what they're doing, but also with, you know, with respect, um, some of it's curiosity. Some of it's like, you're doing this for a living. Let's find out what your structure is. Right. But then at the same time, I'm like, well, I can get lost in the sauce too. Like I can, you know, like I need time to go sit outside. I don't like sitting in a dark room for days on end. I need to go elsewhere and come back with fresh blinders on, so to speak. And that just takes time and you can't, you can't rush that. You know, I hate commercials and music videos where you set a look and then you're done within three hours because I'm like, I don't know. I'm every where I may hate that, yeah. you know, and I'm like, ah, so, I mean, it does come down to taste and like, there's some colorists who I think they just have taste that aligns with mine. And there's some colorists who it doesn't, and you can get there with a colorist whose taste doesn't align with yours, but 
you know, I sort of have like over time, I'm not sure your experience, but over time and working with other artists and working with other like gaffers and colorists and whatnot, you're just like, you have to hire the person that does the kind of thing you like. You can't talk somebody else into it. Like they just, people do what they do well because it's what they keep doing, you know? And like, so you hire the right person. But it's also kind of, in a lot of ways, it's important to stick to what you do well and, and not necessarily be, um, so malleable unless you're great at it. But like, I think when a lot of people are starting these days, you know, because every tool is so accessible, there is a lot of like putting yourself out there as a multitasker, you know, how are you going to be a DP if you're telling everyone, like you'll see a lot of people's Instagram, you know, bios, it's like director, DP, editor, producer. And it's like, no, one's going to hire you pick one, you know, one thing and do that. Yeah. And if you want to do the other thing on the side, it's like, great. But like, that's one of the things I tell a lot of, cause like, even in starting to do this as a career, like one of, that was a thing I've had to figure out. It's like, where do I land? You know? And even now I'm like, for years that I wanted to do like thrillers and horror and eventually I'd love to do like, I love world building. So it's like, I would love to do stuff like in a science fiction space because yeah, I want to build a world. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to build a world. I want to do something like, um, and I think that, look, I'm 35. So I'm like, there's, you know what I mean? I very much, it, I've done 10 movies and been doing this for 10 years. I feel very much like I'm starting my career, you know, and, and like, there's so much that I've gleaned in that process and in that time, but it's like, you, how do you discover your voice? Like the only way to do that is to make mistakes to like hone what you do well. And then at a certain point to only reflect a certain kind of work, you know, like mm-hmm. you're not going to be the person called to do a horror movie. If unfortunately there's just, there are thousands of DPs. There are thousands of people shooting. There's, you know, a select number of done movies. There's a select number of done movies that you've heard of, you know, and it's at a certain point, you're like, everyone is looking to be putting you at a niche. And like, this is why I, even though I understand that people sort of like don't necessarily buy into the idea of having a reel, I'm also like, yeah, but when you're, when I'm a DP looking at 10 operators, I don't watch the, the work on their website. I watch the reel and I look at their website to be like, have I heard of any of these? Do I know any of these things or these celebrities, you know, just as like check marks. And so I still subscribe to the idea of having a reel because you will be compared to 10 other DPs and maybe the 10 other guys who have an EDM song and it's like sloppily cut, like having a song that's like, you know, used in Zodiac and you cut to a minute and a half instead of a bloated three minutes will leave an impression. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I do think there's a value when someone's like got 10 people and they're just like, oh, this person, this person, this person, you know, and that is like, what is your voice? What is your niche? You know, what are you bringing to the table? And it's scary. You know what I mean? There are things I've turned down that I'm like, now that I'm a little older, I would tell my younger self, take every commercial job you ever get offered and make the money and meet the people. And then you don't have to put it all on your website or reflect it all. That's fine. Right. And like, there was a younger version of me that was trying to curate that a little too much. And it just led to not developing new relationships and not making more money. Um, now I would probably push that further and then just be like, you know, in my narrative work, I would say six of the 10 movies I've shot are things no one's ever heard of or will, 
you know what I mean? And, and that just is what it took. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I had the opportunity to shoot some stuff. You know, there are people who've done 20 movies and at a certain point you have to be like, stop doing low budget, bad movies. You know, like you're killing your career because at a certain point as you're like, I've done 20 movies that no one's ever seen or heard of. That is a negative, you know, not a positive at a certain point. Right. Um, so I don't know. It is tough. It is tough starting out. Like when I moved to LA, I didn't, I had a reel. That was it. Um, you know, and I worked at a religious organization and shot stuff for myself. I didn't want anyone to think I wanted to do religious stuff. So I didn't tell anyone about it. I didn't show any of that work. Um, but then, you know, it's been just Craigslist and Mandy jobs and, you know, eventually like you're networking and your own contacts and some luck, a lot of luck in there. And Mm -hmm. also like, I can't go without acknowledging that I'm like, I'm white and I'm straight and I'm like a man. And there is also, there have been jobs I've received and interviews I've had that I'm like, this would have been more like they would have asked me more questions and asked to see more frankly, if I hadn't done those things for sure. So, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It's like, if it's what you love and it's what you want to do, I think you're to your point earlier. It's like, find the tools that let inspire you to tell the kinds of stories you want to tell and the people and, um, and you know, and you, and you just keep setting off until you either go bankrupt or you make it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I've definitely kept you uh, longer than I should have. So I, I will let you go. That was actually like a perfect way to, to end on like a vaguely inspirational note. Um, but that was a lot of, yeah, but that was a, a lot of fun. I'll, we'll definitely have to uh, have you back on. That's great. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Take care, brother. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support. And as always, thanks for listening.